Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 1st, 2021, and my guest is the inimitable Michael Munger of Duke University. This is Mike's 40th, yes, count them, 40th appearance on Econ Talk, easily all-time record for most appearances on the program by a guest. He was last here in August of 2021 talking about free markets. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. It is great to be on Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is constitutions. Um, changing constitutions, doing without them, writing one, whether they're important. And we're going to start with a little bit of, um, for background, the role that constitutions play in the theory of public choice. Uh, and we might start by reminding reader, listeners and viewers what public choice is, uh, since it's a term that sounds like one thing and isn't quite the same to you and me. So why don't you begin? Well, remember, the, the origins of public choice were the Committee in Non-Market Decision-Making. And in fact, that was the original name of the journal. And uh, to be fair, they were right. That's even clunkier and more meaningless than public choice. So <laughs> it's true that choosing public choice was an improvement, but that's only because committee or papers in non-market decision-making is even worse. The usual account of the origins of public choice is the, uh, as, as Alistair Cook put it on uh, BBC4 upon the occasion of Buchanan winning the Nobel Prize, the homely but true observation that politicians, after all, are very much like you and me. That is, that they're self-interested and that we should not assume that they're angelic or more, they're smarter. Uh, they might be, but we shouldn't assume that as the justification for the state. And that is, in fact, an important part of public choice. But the real origins of public choice, and particularly the first of what we now think of as the, the public choice Pentateuch, the five founding books of public choice, was the calculus of consent. And the calculus of consent takes up some of the work written um, by. It was written by James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and was published in 1962. So this is right at the origins of what we now think of as public choice. One of Buchanan's heroes was the Swedish economist, political economist, Newt Vixell. And what Vixell had said, and it was interesting, was that the only justification for coercion was consent. And we're used to seeing that in bilateral contracts. So when you think about it, if, if I want you to put a roof on my house, the only way that that can happen is if we have unanimous consent. Now, it's just between me and you. Meaning, so it's yeah, two, it's two people. I say, I'll pay you $5,000 to put a roof on my house. You think about it. You say yes. And so you agree to put the roof on the house. I agree to pay the $5,000. We have some mechanism of enforcing that. And in fact, we will agree to be coerced. In a, in, unless we have some means of ensuring compliance with the agreement, we're actually not free. So a key to liberty is the ability voluntarily to subject yourself to coercion if you violate the terms of the agreement. That's the way we make binding agreements. And meaning, you said binding agreements when you went out there for a sec. Uh, by, by coercion, you mean 
if I don't do a good job on the roof, you can take me to court and I might be fined and what money could be taken from me in my bank account. And if you don't pay, I can sue you and you could either go to jail or your wages could be garnished or your house could be seized. Is that, is that correct? Yes. And that, that, those could be solved by reputation. They could be solved by repeat business, but it's much cheaper if we have impersonal exchange. You and I can trade, but it takes unanimous consent. So Buchanan's insight was, and Vixel's insight was, in that circumstance, most of us have no problem. And in fact, the pro-market people are quite happy with the idea of there being some sort of punishment, or let's call it coercion. It's not exactly the same as you, you're not, but you might go to jail if you violate, if you defraud me, if you pay, it might be something worse than I, I just sue for damages. So most of us, if you violate the agreement, you make a promise, you violate that, we agree that you're going to be subject to coercion and you deserve it. Even the most libertarian anarchist people think coercion is justified under those circumstances. So the and, question- and by one last thing, you said even anarchists. So, so it might include me coming, one of us coming to the other's house with, with a weapon. Probably we're to, not going to, to do that. We, in division of labor, somebody's going to specialize. So there's a private third-party enforcement agency. Okay. And in the contract, we both agree that this third-party private enforcement agency, because they specialize in that, it's easier for them. Division of labor means that they're going to be better at it. They're, you know, they'll have practice. They'll have tools and equipment. So the usual Adam Smith story about division of labor. But the, So it's not the state, but we're going to create. Could be. It, it could be, but in, even if you think there should be no state. There, we, we expect that there would be parties that specialize in the provision of enforcement and violence, provided it is justified by, by consent. A prior agreement. And I have yep. to say before we go on that you said this group would specialize and we turn it over to this third party. I find it hard to believe there'd be a third party that could swing a baseball bat, say at someone's knees better than you could, but okay, <laughs> fine. I mean, I've seen you in a baseball field. I, know I, you're I, I, admit, I would, I would not be a professor. <laughs> I would be the guy with the baseball bat. That's probably true. But I'm not proud Sorry. of that, but it's true. That's, that's my highest valued use for society. Okay. No, that's not true. So Nutvik Sell said we, justify coercion under the circumstances that we have informed consent. And, you know, you have outside options, you have alternatives, you have maybe some right to buy yourself, buy your way out of the contract. So that there's a whole system that allows us to say under those circumstances, coercion is justified. Bixell said we ought to use the same logic, the same restriction for public goods and collective actions. There's a lot of activities that require more than just two people. That to provide them, there's three or four or 10 or 50. And so Buchanan, being a redneck from the South, like me, used the rather homely example of mosquito control. If your neighbors have a bunch of old spare tires, as of course one does, laying around their, <laughs> their, their property, uh, I do. I have two sitting out back, and they're full of water and mosquitoes. I'm sure my, uh, my neighbors look at that and say, oh, please not very public spirited. So all of us have to participate in this because mosquitoes move around. And so we all promise that we will get rid of all the things that produce mosquitoes on our property. And if we don't do that, we might be subject to at least the censure our neighbors will say, and you know, that guy's acting badly. Well, we might even for uh, something where we need to do flood control, we need to build a dam. A lot of us have to agree 
to contribute to the flood control, but there's the free rider problem. So we might all sign a contract that makes it contingent. I will only pay if everybody else pays, and we will contract with some third-party enforcement agency that anyone who doesn't contribute this fee towards the construction of the flood control berm will, ha- will, will be punished. That's beginning to look a lot like taxes, but it's voluntary taxes in the sense we all consented to be taxed, and it's on condition that everybody else pay their taxes also. So I, I have to note that I think that's the first use of the word berm in over 800 episodes of Econ. Talk a berm is a, it has various ways so you i think you can use the word but it, it, it includes a mound of earth that might so deter it's a, it's a levy, water really in this context a, kind of yeah so so a, a, wait a minute but, a, but a long the mound is, of earth a long mound of earth but here's the question i say i'm i'm just a jerk i don't i don't want to be part of this agreement and i say you guys build the levy you guys build the berm i'm not in so the rest of you start to wonder and of course every crosses everyone's mind that they might be that person. Of course, if I want to see you at the cocktail party or at the local YMCA or whatever communal things we do together, it's not going to be good for your social life to, to be that person. But I don't understand the, the, the consent coercion thing. The, the consent coercion thing is that as long as we all agree, we might all agree to be coerced. We might all agree in ex ante, in advance, that we would uh, pledge to contribute the money and should we renege on that pledge should we say we're not we changed our minds we would have signed a document that allowed someone a third party private in the first story but maybe government later to take that money from us involuntarily is that a good summary well it's a it's a good summary and you have raised buchanan's objections to vixel so vixel is saying the only things that we should do are those for which we can get unanimous consent but someone and we'll call that person the jerk might say um, it's act. I'm in. The others are inframarginal, and what inframarginal means that it's worth enough to them to pay into this damn fund that I actually don't have to. So I don't consent, and you cannot coerce me if I fail to pay. And I know there's five of us. The other four of you care enough about this that you'll all do it. So we can't actually use literal unanimous consent. For but we, we can do that for the contract to put on the roof. If you're a roofer and you say, no, I don't want to do that, it would be ridiculous for me to say, no, no, you have to. But it's pretty plausible to say if all five of us need to contribute, four of us have agreed, we'll force the other person against their will. The problem is that's a different thing. That's not, that's not justified coercion under this system. And so what Buchanan said was, it seems like the logic of Vic Sell's approach is airtight and that it is, if it's not necessary, it is sufficient. That is, suppose that I have agreed to be coerced if I violate my promise, and then I violate my promise. That probably really does justify coercion, that I do justify being punished. So what Buchanan said was, we probably cannot use the Vixelian system at the level of outcomes or actual policy, but we could use it at the level of rules. And so what, what the calculus of consent does is, said, is to say, and this actually echoes a famous question that was asked by Rousseau that we have talked on the show about. Rousseau's question was, how can it be said that a man is both free and yet bound by wills not his own? How can it be that a man is both free and yet bound by wills not his own? And so your fifth guy, the jerk, 
is being bound by wills not his own because four of us say, no, no, you have to pay taxes even though you don't want to. And so Rousseau's answer, I think, went off the rails. Please. Just one clarifying question. It might not be a jerk. It could be a person yeah, right. who I said doesn't have a basement. I said yeah, but, would, he, he might have perfectly good reasons. That's why like I he, like your example. Let's say he, has a ba- he doesn't a have a basement. Yeah, but what if he doesn't have a basement? Yeah. What if he's so on high he, ground? Yeah, relatively high ground. Yeah. Or just he's poor, and he's decided that a little bit of water in the basement once a year, twice a year, ten well, times a year does, is, is okay with him. He doesn't need a reason. He doesn't need a reason. He is an autonomous contractor. So yes. whatever his reason, he is entitled to make this decision. That's also a big part of liberty. So that, that's right. The other four are going to call him a jerk, but he may not be a jerk. That's a good point. So where do, I'm, I'm a little bit lost. Before we go back to Rousseau, which I you know, love that quote, and I want you to answer his question. In the case I just mentioned where one person, either jerk or has hit the value of the of the flood protection is much smaller for that person relative to the twenty percent share that that person is going to have to contribute for the uh, out of the five people. What's Buchanan and Wix and, and Wixell saying about that person at that point? I, I was about to say, and now I will. Okay, so Buchanan, Buchanan said you actually can't use the Wixellian approach, and the answer to Rousseau's question is that. It's not the question is not whether you consent to the outcome. The question is whether you consented to the rule by which the outcome was arrived at. So suppose that we have a meeting and we say we have to do a number of things around the neighborhood. Some of them you're going to want to do, some you're not going to want to do, but maybe we can do log rolls, maybe we can make some kind of arrangement. Let's have a thing called a constitution, which is a set of rules about rules. That is, it is the way that we will make decisions. It's not the decisions itself. A constitution is not the decisions itself, although many constitutions are full of conclusions about the way things should be. But a good constitution, by this reasoning, is rules about rules. We're creating decision processes because deciding how to decide is the key. So in this case, if I were to move into this neighborhood, I might be consenting it could be a term, part of the term of owning a property in this neighborhood. I would be consenting to submit myself to a rule about when a levy, bad use of word there, L-E-V-Y, a tax. I, I, Sorry I, about it, it's, that. That's the ambiguity that enriches. It's a levy levy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a levy levy. A, a levy levy uh, will be acceptable to you once you move into this property under the following conditions. But you conditions skipping. could be you keep skipping well, they could ahead. Be unanimity. Well, they could be. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to just help people help me see it. <laughs> right, right. But but it, it, if, if you'll just let me set the original oh, conditions, ahead. then we will. Because that's you're right. You're making the perfect point three steps ahead. Okay, keep going, Mike. So we have a meeting, the five of us, and we say this: we are in the state of nature. We are. We are in a, a condition where we want to make a decision about how to decide things. And there's a lot of problems about doing things unanimously. Let's say that we will require three of the five of us, 60%, and that that's true even if there's 100 of us. As it happens, three out of five is a simple majority, but even if our community grows, then it's 60%. A majority is not enough. We're going to use 60%. And we get unanimous consent for that. 
That is, this neighborhood is constituted to make decisions that are binding on 100% of the people if 60% of the people vote in favor of it. And even if the neighborhood grows to 1,000, 60% is still going to be the rule that we use. And we put that down on a piece of paper, which we call the Constitution, and now we're at your step. We give that piece of paper to all prospective buyers and say, oh, by the way, this is, you are consenting to this if you buy a house in this neighborhood. So, And that's consenting to be coerced. It's basically yes. saying that if there happens to be a project that yields a 60% approval with a referendum, uh, you're, you're going to have to pay. And if you don't pay, we'll, we'll coerce you. And notice that that's the way it often works. I haven't actually tried this argument because I know that it won't happen, but it's tempting. Um, I'm, I often drive too fast, and sometimes the police have objections to that, and they want to talk to me. In fact, they insist. They say, we're, we're actually going to talk now. <laughs> and I could say, you know, I understand there was a vote about the speed limit, but I didn't consent. I wanted 80%, and so I'm at. 80, 80 miles per hour. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I went right, right. I, I went 80 miles per hour, and I understand that it's a school zone and the speed limit's 25, but I didn't consent to that. And so, not a thing. Not up to the cop. <laughs> that, that, that's not going to work. So, I consented to the process by which the rules are decided. And therefore, the rules are binding on me, even if I disagree with the particular outcome. It's not that, true that you agreed to the rules. Mike Munger didn't agree to the rules. You were born into a society. You're skipping ahead again. You're skipping ahead again. (laughs) I'm going to get a very bad grade on this this episode, I can tell. We're in in the neighborhood of our five people. And another thing our Constitution said is that we will use 60% to decide the speed limits. And so I consented because I bought property after being handed that piece of paper and the speed limit says 25 here in the in the school zone now the question is does that theory remember we're talking about the origins of public choice so jim buchanan in the calculus of consent with gordon tullock said we should think about constitutions as a set of rules about rules that create binding consent and it's really important to be able to have consent as a justification for coercion. Now, the question that you just asked, and it's a great one, it's the big one, is, is there such a thing as tacit consent? Because notice that I've been really careful either to have actual consent of the original constitutors who voted unanimously, or the people who entered knowing, being fully informed of the nature of the rules. But what if you're born into this? So David Hume uh, famously made fun of the idea of, because the tacit consent is the Rousseauian solution. If you're a citizen of the country, if you don't leave, you're bound by the rules. And if you don't like it, leave. That's consent. That's ridiculous. So <laughs> David Hume said, that's like saying you're taken on board a ship asleep and a hundred <laughs> leagues out at sea, you wake up and you say, I, I don't want to be on the ship. And the captain said, knock yourself out. Go ahead. Just jump over the side and be devoured by monsters of the sea. Up to you. But if you stay on this ship, you are voluntarily agreeing to my rules, whatever they are. That's not real consent. That doesn't really create coercion. So the reason I have tried to insist we, you know, we go on this narrow and I probably boring path is no, that the question never. is, 
what is the justification, what, if anything, is the justification for one person to coerce another? And for Buchanan, the only thing that can ever justify coercion is the prior consent of the person being coerced, the actual prior consent of the person being coerced. So I'm skipping ahead a lot. I apologize. And I'm gonna, and I'm gonna get a bad grade. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for probably either an appeal of the grade, or maybe a makeup exam, or some extra work I might do to boost it up. Yeah, at the there end. are no conditions for either in the Constitution. <laughs> I was gonna say we need a different set of rules for this podcast, obviously. <laughs> but you know, I've confessed on here before. I'm not. I don't know Buchanan and Tulloch. I don't know their work. Um, it's it's a it's one of the many holes in my reading and not set of knowledge. Uh, so. Right now, you've just summarized Buchanan and Tullock's calculus of consent by saying that I think that they don't believe in tacit consent. It has to be actual consent. Is that true? That is sufficient but not necessary for justifying coercion. And so I realize okay. that's a slippery answer. Okay. But the, the question going. is, what is necessary? Okay. And uh, Buchanan actually has a uh, proposition about the status quo. And he, later in his life, Buchanan became much more skeptical about whether the whether coercion by states could be justified at all. Now, it might be justified by something else, but he didn't think that the existence of a constitution necessarily justified coercion. In fact, he had some questions about whether constitutions really were as valuable as he had said for states. For Remember, James Buchanan actually won the Nobel Prize in large part for his work on clubs. So if we have a private club, club goods are those that, uh, in, in my neighborhood, we have a, there's uh, four tennis courts and uh, two pools, and you can belong to that club. It is an excludable, that is, you have to pay in order to go in, but non-rival meaning that the pool doesn't get crowded until there's a lot of people in it. So clubs are sort of social organizations. Nobody could afford, well, most people could not afford four tennis courts, a nice park, and two pools. So collectively, we can privately create this public good of having the racket and pool club. There's a constitution, and you only can go there if you consent to the rules of the club. You can be kicked out of the club. You can quit the club. You can go somewhere else. So that's actually what Buchanan is talking about, is that sort of constitution among private citizens for organizations that are not state. They're voluntary private associations, which is why Alexis de Tocqueville is one of the central figures of this strand of public choice. So the, the Ostrom uh, seminar room at the University of Indiana, uh, at Indiana University, was called the Tocqueville Room. So the Tocqueville and voluntary private associations are the way to think. Those things are constituted. They have small c constitutions in the sense they write an agreement and it's binding and it creates a justification for coercive response if people violate the rules. But then what about real constitutions with a big C, like the U.S. Constitution, and what about states? What can we say about those? Okay, good. <laughs> I think I got it. I'm with you. I'm totally with you, I think. But, but, but you, did you want to say anything else about necessary? In, in the, I mean, did Buchanan feel he should pay his taxes? 
I mean, he didn't, he didn't sign the U.S. Constitution. He was born into this country, never agreed to whatever the marginal tax rate he was stuck with. And went, you know, after he won the Nobel Prize, I'm sure he had to pay a big tax burden. He didn't agree to that. Did, did he feel justified? Obviously, if he didn't pay it, they'd take him to jail. So they would coerce him. But did he, did he think that kind of coercion to collect taxes was, was legitimate? The uh, answer to the question is one of the reasons why you probably have not read much James Buchanan, because he had a, <laughs> an extremely frustrating response. And that was he would invoke the relatively absolute absolutes. And what are those? <laughs> the relatively absolute absolutes are a set of conditions that we accept as the status quo. Because the status quo has a special status. Status quo for people is the one outcome that doesn't need a majority, or in fact, it doesn't need anyone to vote for it in order to be binding. So we always start from where we are. And this is actually a Burkean, an Edmund Burke, and you've, you've had Ed, uh, Dennis Rasmussen, one of my, my friend Duke students, on the show a couple of times, I think. And you've all been talking yeah, about right. Burke. So Edmund Burke would say that there are binding rules that come down to us from the past, having stood the test of time as ways of organizing our society. And in fact, England doesn't really have a written constitution at all, but it does have a set of rules that have come down to us from the past. Now, we could pass legislation to change these, but by and large, the relatively absolute absolutes are the things that we accept as part of our daily lives that they're a pretty good way of organizing our lives. And if we want to change them, we can work to change them. But we really have to stick to the status quo. So... What Buchanan does is kind of a trick. Instead of saying that we have to justify the level, he says we have to justify the change in the rules. And so it takes our consent to justify a change in the rules because the status quo has a special status. Now, that's really bad. And Hayek has this problem, too, where Hayek wants these traditions that come down to us from the past, these habits, these laws, as opposed to legislation, to be no, binding. I'm just because we know that they're right. Well, what, some of them are wrong. Racism, patriarchy, some of those yeah. are really bad. How would you tell? Well, they're relatively absolute absolute. So we have to, we have to have, we are of two minds about the RAAs. One, <laughs> we mostly accept them, but scholars, there's nothing that's sacrosanct. So um, everything is constantly up for questioning and debate. And we can change some of those norms. We can, by statute or actual constitutional provision, get rid of them. So I, that is certainly the weakest part of Buchanan's theory is the relatively absolute absolute. I find that kind of interesting, actually. I don't, I don't denigrate it Oh, it's it much at more all. in accord with your own view, which is why I think it's weak. <laughs> <laughs> I, I call that a cheap shot. Yeah, it was I'm a cheap shot. It, it was go. a, a, a dirty cheap shot. I'm going to let it go. Actually, I... I, I I'm surprised you say that. Uh, I, I do think there's a fund. With the, I'm not much of a scholar of you know of ideology in a deep philosophical sense, but clearly that argument of RAA relative at relative absolute absolutes. There are no absolutes. Yeah, but there's not some absolute. that are relatively absolute. Yeah. and that argument is clearly a conservative argument. Mm -hmm. Small, small, uh, small, big. I'm not sure what kind of size it is, but a conservative argument versus let's call it not a liberal but a radical argument. Yeah. The liberal excuse me, the radical says, this, these rules, it's, a lot of them are bad. They lead to bad things. We've got to start from scratch. We should start over. We can do better. We, start, we can the do better. The project and, of reason. And they are correct. 
we could do better, but it doesn't mean we will do better. And that's we what makes a person we don't a conservative. Yeah. The conservative says uh, it's not just whether every rule is just. What's important, among other things, is civilization. And what civilization requires is a set of expectations so that your will and my will don't clash every single minute. And what norms do, norms are a way – something we've talked about a lot on this program, we'll link to, you and me, we'll link to those episodes. What norms do is allow us to lead our lives, meaning it sets the implicit rules of the game without having to have a constitutional convention every day to, to ask the question, well, things have changed since yesterday. Perhaps it's time for some new rules. That the status quo, even when it's unjust, which inevitably will be. Absolutely. And I, it, the status quo has a virtue, which is that it's well known, and people do their best in the face of that status quo. Sometimes they mean, it means going around. It means avoiding. It means evading. But in a, in a good society, a decent, pretty good society, which is the best you can hope for usually in a, a large world where it's not five people, but it's five million or for 50 million or 500 million, in a large world, you can't really fix everything every day. You don't have enough information, and you don't have enough rules, and you're prone to top-down corruption of power if you have too much uh, – uh, flexibility to move things around constantly, it's going to get hijacked, that maybe this is not a bad starting place many times. And that's just a really interesting idea. I guess it's a way to think about yourself, whether you are fundamentally a conservative or a radical. And uh, as I get older, I am more conservative than right. When I was younger, I was, when I was, I think, more libertarian than conservative, I would say, yeah, well, we've got to start from scratch. I mean, not literally, but we, there's so many things that we could need to fix. Yeah. And lastly, I'm going to invoke one more thing, then, I'll, then it's your turn. The whole idea of the Chesterton fence, which started to make an appearance here on this program like in the last few years, is this really interesting idea that you see something, it doesn't make any sense really. So you say, well, it's a fence. It's in the middle of a field. Let's tear it down. That's, why would you want a fence in the middle of a field? It's, it's in the way. Literally, it's, it's in the by, way. De- by definition, it's in the way. Clear it out and let's, let's allow more freedom and passage. And the Chesterton response is, well, since you don't know why they built it in the first place, you might want to be careful about tearing it down. And it could be, as you point out. And we've said – I've agreed to it many times. could be it was built for a really horrible reason. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you do probably in that case might want to turn it down, but if you tear it down. But if you don't know that, uh, you might make a terrible mistake. And, and similarly, I think a lot of the opposition to capitalism in today's world is from people who don't like capitalism. And I'm going to invoke my, one of my favorite Mike Munger things, the ugliest pig. I mean, obviously, capitalism has to be the ugliest pig at an ugly pig contest. Could there be anything uglier? The answer is yes, but you don't know yeah. enough to rule it out. So you say, I'll have it. There, oh, there's a thing called socialism? I'll have that. Communism? I'll have that. Uh, a, a populist dictator who can finally set things straight? I'll take that, too. Uh, any of those would be better than what the status quo. The status quo was awful. And that view, which is a fundamentally radical view... It is inevitably held more tightly by the young, I think, than the old for a variety of reasons, some of which are attractive, some not. Uh, that view ignores the possibility that you could have an even an, uh, an even uglier pig than capitalism. There could be worse outcomes, and that's unimaginable, I think, to the radical. The radical says, well, I don't want those. We're not going to have those. We're going to have a different kind. Okay, I'm done. Well, so for now. Buchanan was, uh, was influenced a lot by Hayek. And so the, if you look at the calculus of consent in 1962, it's pretty optimistic about the project of reason and the development of a science of constitutions. By 1980, uh, 
Buchanan had been influenced more by Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek, in the counter-revolution of science, said, so it's not just that young radicals have this romantic idealism. Hayek would say that many people who see themselves as social scientists come up with these, they are men of system. They are like Smith's men of system. They come up with these elaborate systems that they want to be implemented in every detail in social structures. And those are wrong, too. It's not just the idealistic, romantic young people. Tear everything down, start from scratch. It said, we don't need to start from scratch. I have a better system we, right I, now. Reason with the, I, I understand this. <laughs> and we, we do not understand institutions very well. And that's a very frustrating argument to make for people who say the system is bad. And it is. And you don't know why that fence is there. And if you take it down, things are going to be worse. If you ask me why, I don't know why. I'm just pretty confident that they will be because we're really bad at this. And if you look over history over and over again, we've been really bad at this. Yeah, it's not so much that I don't know, so I don't care, and we're going to leave it alone. It's that my default, the burden of proof has to be on you. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I care down. very much. Not, yeah. I care very much. But if you don't know, think something really bad might very well happen because the consequence of tinkering with all of this, it's a, it's a complex system. It's a complex adaptive system. And over time, there has been an evolutionary process that has selected the survival of this constitutional system. So we might ask, is the U.S. Constitution a good constitution? The U.S. Constitution is something that is revered by Americans as if it were a sacred text. And people hand it out as if it were the revealed truth of God. And many people think of the U.S. Constitution as being really the primary basis of what they see as American success over the last 250 years. I think it's fair to ask whether the American Constitution is, as, and Buchanan thought that in the, in the calculus of consent, Buchanan and Tulloch were, they thought, rewriting what James Madison had said in his journal. So they read Madison's journal, they looked at the Federalist Papers, and they said, let's give a more reason-based justification and explanation of the, the way that the U.S. Constitution was written. By 1980, uh, Buchanan at least, and I'm not sure Tulloch ever really believed that, but Buchanan had abandoned that view for a much more nuanced view that the American Constitution was interesting. It was probably important as a focal point, but it was not causal. So it, it is nice to have words that we can organize around. So it was really important that the Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal. That's a really important thing to say, even if it's not true. And you made this point a number of times during the episode about the Magna Carta, that of course the Magna Carta wasn't true. It was gone in a few weeks. It was redone a bunch of times, but it really mattered that there was something on a piece of paper that everybody had agreed to that said, here are our rules. This we believe. Because the, you can use it as a bludgeon to say, well, wait, that's not what you said. And, and I think just to broaden the discussion a little bit, I, it's pretty broad right now. I, I, I become increasingly interested as I get older in this idea of a common or shared vocabulary because language is fundamentally imperfect. It's very hard to communicate between two human beings with brains in two different bodies. 
and it gets harder as the number of people increases. So having a shared vocabulary, even if we're not 100% in agreement over what the words mean, even though we concede there are things called suitcase words where people are stuffing things in that, that are not uh, necessarily what you'd stuff in and you're stuffing things in that I'm stuffing in different things in my suitcase using that word, say equal, all men, right? Whether you might think that means just males, you might think it means just white males, other people might think it meant, oh, well, doesn't it mean, it says men. So there's going to be disagreement. But certainly that phrase, all men are created equal, was a bludgeon that was used to fight slavery, even though it couldn't win the day. It should have won the day logically on the first day of the country. Yeah. And, and again, I would reference the fabulous episode that you did on, on racism and slavery that we did a long time ago. It's one of, I think a lot of people would name it one of their favorite top five, maybe all-time favorite episodes of how people rationalize slavery. And they could. They are really good at it because they had a yeah. self-interest in doing so, and they managed to convince themselves it was actually even good for the slaves. Yeah, and that's absolutely. despicable. It's despicable. But the, the point is, is that that phrase, all men are created equal, which had on the surface no impact because obviously it was not enforced. Slavery existed from the big first instant of the country. The existence of that phrase was a constant drumbeat that eventually wore down like drops on a rock the, to some extent, the, the defense of slavery. Yeah, it, it, it was a useful tool. It wasn't the only thing, but when you say it was the elimination of slavery, it's actually worse than that. So Frederick Douglass would often talk about the fact, look, this is your Declaration of Independence. But he was talking about this in 1875, 1878. So even after the Civil War, of course, blacks of course. Were, it, was, it was 1965, arguably, before even the beginnings of desegregation started to have any impact, which is astonishing. So you can say those words mean nothing. That's not true. We didn't win, but it did. It was a pressure point. It was a means by which you could say you're being a hypocrite. You say that you believe this and you clearly don't. So constitutions could certainly matter for that reason, that it is a shared vocabulary. It's something we've all said we believe in. And then if you act in ways that are not consistent with that, it's at least a problem that you have to work around. But the truth is, is that there is more value on, at least you can make a case, there's more value for the U.S. Constitution than just it was a shared vocabulary. You know, I've argued in here that the only thing that's left of the Constitution are the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, and most people don't agree that both matter. They just pick the one they like, and they, some people like one, and some people like the other one, but very few like both. And, I, and, and other than that, very little constrains legislation in the United States. That, that's my sort of cheap shot, political, fake political scientist uh, view of the Constitution. Do you agree with that? Could we, and my argument would be, by the way, for those who are thinking, what are you talking about? They've got, there's a whole bunch of other stuff there that... And the answer is to that is, yeah, they always find a way to talk themselves out of it if they need to. And if, if they, they don't. I think they don't always because Mike Pence wanted to talk his way out of it, and he didn't. He said, you know, I can't do that. I cannot declare Donald Trump the president. And he may very well have wanted. There was a lot of pressure on him to do that. So I, I think having these rules, particularly for conservatives that say they care about the Constitution, it can matter a lot on process. It's rules about rules. And it might only matter once every four years, but that is a really important time, that once. And so, true, you're, you're saying, well, true day-to-day legislation, a lot yeah. of it gets through that in 1940 or 1880 would have been called unconstitutional. Now they figured out a way to justify it, and so it's anything goes. Um, and we're really in some 
unconstitutional world with most legislation. You're saying that may be true, but there are times when it is effectively binding and it does constrain. And that's that's a great point. Because it is rules about rules, it set up some kind of structure. You can't just do it any old way that you want. So one of the reasons that we're doing this in this podcast was that I had said to you in an email that I've gotten a surprising number of requests recently. What do you think about this, Munger? Shouldn't the U.S. have a new constitutional convention? Shouldn't we write a new constitutional convention? And I pointed out. And because you knew, because we're, we're so smart now. No, it, it's what you just said. It's ago. all gone. No, it's all gone. <laughs> oh, that's why. You just said it's all gone. We need to start a new one because this time it will be binding. It's always this time will be different. So you've actually just made the argument. First and second, nobody believes in both, but most of the rest of it is gone. We need to actually have a discussion and an agreement on a new constitution. And I think that's, what do you a, say? that's a terrible idea. There's a lot of <laughs> terrible ideas. That's one of the terrible est ideas. Why? Well, there, I think it's also interesting to look at the fact that uh, Chile in South America is actually going through this exercise now to write a constitution. Um, so it, it, it is a they live, have one. They, they have one, and it was imposed. It's been reformed. It was imposed in 1980 at Bayonet Point by the non-democratic regime, and it has been reformed, but a lot of the basic structure exists. It's, they're not objecting to it because it doesn't work. They're objecting to it because it does, and they think that if they start over, they can do better. So this, this idea that we're going to have a constitution and it's going to matter is an important question in political science at a very fundamental level. So one of my favorite political theorists who disagreed violently with James Buchanan, but was actually a great friend of his, and I should say the reason that people have heard of him at all is uh, Liberty Fund published his books and James Buchanan invited him to give a bunch of talks, and it was the the Hungarian-French political theorist, Anthony de Jassé. And de Jassé, in his book, uh, The State, and a number of his later books, raised an objection to constitutions that I actually find perplexing. I basically just straightforwardly believe constitutions are important. Words mean what they say they mean. We'll have courts to interpret them. So I'm a very traditional kind of American ninth-grade civics. Here's the Constitution. Isn't it great? Um, I don't think that's right. And they just say, said, there's actually only two things that can be true. One is that everybody believes in the principles that are embodied in the Constitution, in which case it is unnecessary. Or no one believes in them, or not many people believe them, in in which case it is ineffective. And that means that the Constitution might be a way that we could sort of support the fact that everybody believes in the Constitution. And he thinks that was largely true in the U.S. in the 19th century. But it has not been true in the U.S. since at least the 1930s and the New Deal. And that the Constitution is largely epiphenomenal, and which means that it, it doesn't actually matter. It's something that exists at a level above things that matter, and that is the <laughs> attitudes that people have towards the Constitution. If no one believes in the Constitution, then it means we'll always find some kind of workaround. Uh, do, you know, do, you, do you agree with the Jesse in that, in that example? I don't that think there are only two things? I don't think that he's right. I no longer I don't believe that he's entirely wrong. 
Well, he's it, onto something. It's a great point. Yes. And it's a bit of a reductio, reductio absurdum, of and course. And he always, he always would do that. If you challenged him, he would laugh and say, well, of course, yes, that's tendentious. That's an exaggeration. But I have to make the point that way in order to get you to understand it because you're not very smart. <laughs> he, he and I, he's, he's right there. Yeah, he was right, absolutely about right. you, Mike. Yeah, but, but he could even be right about me. He was talking me. to me personally. I, that's right. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it, it seems to me uh, that you know I'm a um, super uneducated student of uh, Charles Peirce, and and I've told listeners before that my understanding of Peirce was channeled through my philosophy professor Dick Smythe, who I adored as a faculty, as a professor, who's incredibly intellectually provocative, and and he was a pragmatist. He was interested in Peirce, the pragmatist, and um, Smythe and Peirce, as far as I understand it, through Smythe, argued that yeah, you think you're using reason, but you really aren't, and if you're not careful, uh, you'll you'll follow your your self-interest, your heart, and you'll convince yourself after the fact that you've been doing something uh, that, that was actually quite rational. Um, you know, this, this is in Pascal, the heart has its reasons that reason does not know. And for that reason, rules are often better than discretion. Even though rules don't allow you to be flexible, discretion allows you to continually convince yourself of things that look good but actually aren't. And so this idea that somehow... Uh, because we have doubts or imperfections, acknowledge imperfections in the Constitution means that we can, we'll always find a workaround. It's not quite true. We won't always, as you would point out, I think, we don't always find a workaround. The, the Pence election example is one of them. Uh, but, but, but more importantly, that, that the nature of human beings, especially acting in groups, an insight that I think you understand better than almost anyone. Uh, with your son, you wrote that wonderful book, title. Choosing groups. groups. Yeah, if you got it right. Um, that when you do that, your imperfect knowledge, uh, the concentration of power in the hands of decision makers, rules, even imperfect ones, are going to often be dramatically better, not on any one decision, but over the long haul. And that's the civilization point, I think, that the conservatism, I think, is fundamentally arguing. What, what do you think of that? Well, to, to be fair, I was... My presentation on De Chassé was a caricature. Um, he didn't say rules didn't matter. Rules matter a lot. Uh, the, his claim was that the, we should not, the, the Americans should not look at the, the special godlike genius of a few men in the summer of 1789 and say, that's it. That's the reason that the United States is different from other countries. So there was a set of... Keep going. There was a set of rules that they came up with, and they were some of them were kind of conjectural. They remember that this was our second constitution, and so the Articles of Confederation were so bad that they created a large what political scientists call a windset. So there's many things that were better than the Articles of Confederation, even a fairly radical thing like. Uh, what Hamilton wanted, a concentration of federal power. The, if the articles, we got lucky that the Articles of Confederation were so bad that it actually created an enormous windset. And then we picked one of many possible points that were better than the Articles of Confederation. It was contingent. A bunch of other things could have happened. 
So we got a little bit lucky there that the Articles of Confederation were bad enough that we got this constitution instead. It specified a set of rules. It's better to have rules than to have chaos. That's true. That's fine. But to say that the principles are in the constitution are what created the American genius, he thinks is wrong. What happened was... (laughs) He did just say. He did just say. What happened was that there was... We had federalism, which means that you have competition among states, and you could escape. So his central concept is exit. If you can exit, and this is true from almost any contract, my ability to coerce you is going to be limited sharply by your viable ability to exit. And the existence of the American frontier, he thought, was more important than the American Constitution. And the combination of the American frontier and the American Constitution, that's what made America great. I should mention that that Dijasse uh, was an essayist for the Library of Economics and Liberty for a long time. We have many of his essays uh, relating to these issues. They're very accessible. Some of them are quite entertaining. Many, almost all of them are thought provoking. And um, one of them, which I think is the State on Your Dog, is that the yeah, title? That's, one that's, of my favorite essays it, ever. That is Bastiat quality essay. Yeah, it's spectacular. But but even though I made fun of him a minute ago, I have to. I have to concede that his there are two types of people example is really my point as a reductio ad absurdum because it says, oh, you don't like the way things are in the United States because you think we've failed to uphold the Constitution. Oh, therefore, we need a tougher Constitution when, in fact, what we really need to do is convince the people who are who really don't care about the Constitution – that they should care about some of the outcomes or some yeah. of the rules that are that are in place. And if you think you're going to do it by making the world more yeah. constitutional, you're living in a, in a fantasy world. So, so we'll, and I think we'll, he's right. We'll have a new piece of paper that no one believes in. That will solve everything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But that, that's more or less what verbatim, if he'd had a drink or two, that's more or less exactly. <laughs> we'll have a new piece of paper no one believes in, and that's going to solve your problem. Apparently, you exactly. didn't go to school. <laughs> Or you slept through the important parts. Yeah. Um, so when you get called and asked, should we have a constitutional convention? You say, that's a pipe dream. You're living in a... Right, and I try, I, I try to give three reasons. One is the way we got the first constitution was that we had Articles of Confederation, which were terrible. Our constitution has made, problems, yeah. but it's not so terrible. It's not clear that the set of... Things that are better are going to be enough better to take the risks. Second, um, I am skeptical that starting over is going to work again in the sense that we're going to come together around something because it takes a long time to create a consensus. So the, the difficulty is that the, uh, there had been an Annapolis convention in which the delegates were supposed to come up with ways of solving commercial problems about tariffs and regulations in interstate commerce. And so they went to Philadelphia to have a meeting about solving those problems. And they said, you know, let's write a constitution. So they closed all the windows, even though it was really hot, because the Articles of Confederation said you need 13 out of 13. You need Vixellian unanimous consent. And this bunch of some states didn't even send delegates. This bunch of guys said, I tell you what, we need nine out of 13. It's unconstitutional. The Constitution is literally unconstitutional because it was ratified using a 9 out of 13 rule when the existing Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, required 13 out of 13. So 
that will happen again. If you say you guys go off by yourselves and make up a bunch of rules, they're going to do it, but they're not going to use the existing rules as the status quo that bind their decisions. They're just going to come up with a bunch of rules. We got so lucky. The third thing I think is that people are unlikely to be able to agree. And if you put everything up for grabs, you create what public choice theorists call a rent-seeking contest. If everything is constantly up for grabs, or more, in other words, if you've ever played basketball with a bunch of law professors, or I assume rabbis, <laughs> people who argue for a living, uh, you don't play much basketball. You spend a lot of time discussing deep principles of Old Testament theology, because these, these are really important. So the, if you create- Wait, are you talking about wait a minute, are you talking about things like uh, how do you play to 11 or play to 21? What's a foul? What, 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 what is the nature what, of, what do they get to argue about? Yeah, what is the nature of a foul? Does it require intent? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have literally I have spent 10 minutes on a basketball court listening to two law professors arguing <laughs> whether a foul requires intent. <laughs> it's so fantastic, but uh, I, I don't want to do it again. Uh, somehow Monty Python forgot to use that skip, but it could have, yeah. <laughs> it, but it, it's a, I'm, I am entirely serious. If you say, okay, everything's up for grabs, go argue about it. We will, and a lot of powerful interest will try to exert through back channels influence on the way that these rules are created. So twice now on Econ Talks, and I, I, I try, will try not to bring this up again, but David Schmitz's example of Dessert Town, where you have a bunch of people, and at every intersection, you have to get out and argue who gets to go through first. Now, it's true that it's unjust if you get to go through before I do when I have a more urgent errand. But it's better, and this is your earlier rules point, a stoplight means the longest I have to wait is two minutes. Getting out and arguing about all the rules means that the minimum I have to wait is seven minutes. And so we're, we're clearly all better off having a stoplight, which is unfair, because sometimes you're going to sit and people with less urgent errands are going to go first. But it's still better to have a known, fair, arbitrary rule that we all accept. Now, it's, it has to be true we all accept it. If I think this is unfair and I run the stoplight, that's going to cause accidents in a way the stop and argue thing won't. So just having the set of rules that we all know as a focal point to coordinate our conflicting plans and purposes around makes an enormous difference, provided we all accept it. So in the, in the book, Choosing in Groups, I define politics in a way that I think is unusual, but that I would defend. Politics is a process of deciding on rules such that even the losers accept them as legitimate. So if even the losers accept this as legitimate, we have a way of deciding things. We can organize society that way. But when the losers do not accept it as legitimate, then politics breaks down into anarchy and revolution. And constitutions enable politics. The reasons we want constitutions is to enable politics. It's just, it's just fabulous. Um, I, I just want to invoke the memory of my father. And uh, I think he really did believe that stop signs and uh, stoplights were for other people. They did need it, but not him. Sure. Uh, he always felt he was in more of a legitimate hurry than other people. <laughs> I don't think he ever had an accident at a, at a stoplight. But did, uh, did he run stoplights? Uh, no, but if he got tired of waiting, he would explain to his children, uh, this one must be broken. 
So if there were no cars coming. He, it was, that, he's at a red light. That's There's running, no cars inside. That's running the stoplight. He would stop Absolutely. and then run it. Yeah, of course. He wouldn't run through it, which yeah, would be dangerous, yeah, but he'd yeah. stop. And if enough time passed, then he felt it was justified for his own personal and, needs. And there's no cars coming. He would invoke uh, the ex post narrative. Uh, obviously, the stoplight is malfunctioning. It's not changing, yeah. uh, which which is really actually a deep Einsteinian kind of thing, yeah. how long that should take. Yeah. could be a, a, a millisecond in his mind, <laughs> depending well, on the urgency a, it, of the errand. It's a relativistic observation. Stoplights take much longer if I'm waiting than if you're waiting. Yeah, it's very actually kind of profound. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think that insight that uh, I wish my dad had known that. I don't think he did about politics because that insight, uh, he probably understood it, that it was good for him to stay at the light until it changed. But if he saw it was safe, he felt it was okay. As opposed to other people, and I'm told, I've, I think I've used this before, I apologize. I'm told that in Sweden, if it's two in the morning and there's no cars coming in either direction, uh, people don't cross by foot against the light. Uh not just no cars coming either. There's no headlights within yeah. within ten miles. That that people, and I'm sure this is true of many cultures. By the way, it's here in Israel. To my surprise, uh, there's no jaywalk. Very little jaywalking, and I think most of the jaywalking you might observe are American immigrants, people like myself who moved here. Uh, the reason I don't, and I generally do not. I was going to say I never jaywalk. That would be a lie. I don't. I try not to jaywalk because traffic patterns here are not quite the same as the United States. Cars come from unexpected directions over your shoulder, and therefore. I kind of have the default rule, don't jaywalk. Uh, and, but I think the other reason, it's a big fine here yeah, uh, for all kinds of interesting reasons. But there are cultures where people keep the rules and, and I'm sure would explain to you that if, if people start jaywalking, the next thing you know, we're going to have anarchy and chaos and the world will be very bad. And they're onto something. As you remember, um, in one of my German stories in Munich... <laughs> I crossed against the light, and a little old lady started hitting me with her umbrella, screaming, Kindermurter, Kindermurter. You are a child murderer. If the children see you crossing against I'm I was a lot bigger than she was. But she was beating me with her umbrella because she was I, so upset that someone would cross against. There were no cars coming. Were there children around? That, well, I, I, I should mention, I did mention earlier. There was a group of children. I pushed my way through in order to cross. <laughs> they were in the way. <laughs> the children were waiting, and she was the school teacher. Apparently, that I was. Got it. So, but she was an an Uber Oma, a, a small, very angry woman. And I pushed my way through, looked both ways, and crossed. I was late. I mean, I've yeah, got to go. Course. I'm like your dad. This rule doesn't apply to me. Uh, yeah, the children should wait. And she went nuts. And she was onto something. She, I came back. I tried to apologize, saying she was right. I was rubbing my elbow. was a little sore. I could, <laughs> I could have taken her, but my response <laughs> was to be ashamed. I mean, I thought sure. my response, I tried to make myself physically smaller. My, my face is turning red even now, and I'm sweating thinking about it. We have an emotional response to being called out for violating the rules that make the us rule-following punishers. We are emotionally. I, she did not reason, you know, I am going to go attack a 110-kilogram man. That's a bad idea. <laughs> What happened was her body was suffused with a cocktail of chemicals that said, attack, he's violating the rules. And so she acted on that irrational impulse. And so it's irrational in, I, I should say, non-rational. So we yeah. have Adam Smith in talking about the sense of propriety. Human beings have a constitution also. 
And that is a sense that we are constituted by our creator and whatever process you want to say that is to have these kind of responses when we see a violation of the social norms, whatever they are. And it might be that uh, this, this, suppose this elderly woman was an old Southern woman in 1940. You saw a black person walk into a bar. She might have had the same reaction. So the content of the action is socially constructed, but biologically, we are constituted to enforce the rules. And so, yes, in many countries, the the very foundation of the rules is the simplest ones. It's like the broken windows in New York. If you're going to jaywalk, we're just inches away from theft. Well, it's a kind of interesting moment in American history right now. I'm not going to go into it, but I do think, as I've said many times, you know, the the veneer of civilization is thin, and I, I think it's not nearly as thick as people think it is, and they, I think, are playing with fire in certain dimensions. But I, I, I have to say, I don't remember that story. I remember the shopping cart story, and I think that also was in Munich. And it's a beautiful example, both of them, by the way, of when you change countries, as I have, there are different norms – and things that you think of as no big deal, people around you are horrified. Things that you think of as horrifying, they think are no big deal. And it takes a while to figure out how that works and what they are. And, and that's just interesting in and of itself. But I have to say that I've been here five months and I've already heard a person tell me that they were called a murderer here in Israel for jaywalking. <laughs> and, 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 a, and a child, a murderer, of, in this case, it was children. It wasn't uh, – they didn't have the, the German – you know, I don't, th- I don't think Hebrew has the Germanic uh, noun mingling like kinder murder or whatever you, the phrase kinder was. Kinder mortar, yeah. Yeah, kinder mortar. But uh, the person said – they said murderer, and the person said, what, what, are you t- you know, what are you talking about? And, then the, and, the, and it was a woman again. I think she probably was little and old. She said, you know, you're, you're going to kill the children. Yes. Because they're going yes. to learn from you. It's a really fascinating uh, – you know, it's, it's – it's some good comic relief there about the elbow, but uh, I think there's a deep insight there about how norms propagate and how important they are and how the young learn norms from the, the people older than them inevitably. They also learn from their peers, by the way. They have their own world of norms, of mm-hmm. course. Um, but it is interesting that you know, you're telling that certain thing. I've heard that. But, oh, yeah, I heard it here. about. Yeah. I didn't hear it with that's, you. That's amazing. <laughs> I've heard it in Israel, and yeah. I, that's just I'm, – I'm sure other listeners have been either called murderers or have called people murderers. So mm-hmm. please uh, chime in if you, <laughs> if you have similar stories in your personal life. Um, I, I'd just like to close and, and, and give the example of a country like Israel uh, and to some extent England. They don't have constitutions. Uh, now, in Israel, there's a big debate about whether we should write one. Um, and we have a Supreme Court here. They make rulings all the time, somehow without a constitution. They, I, I don't know what rules, implicit rules they use, but they don't have any, I don't think, explicit rules that they are pretending to conform to a constitutional order. What do you think about countries that don't have one, and to what extent does England not have one? Countries that don't have constitutions tend to have an expanded interpretive tradition. And so you have a set of rules. It's basically Torah and Midrash. So the, the, the Midrashim are a bunch of writings, uh, rabbinical writings over time to expand, to apply. So they, we use analogical reasoning to understand the particular circumstances in which uh, 
some case, some set of facts will be adjudicated in a particular way. And the advantage of that, there was the Louis XIV, I, I think I heard about it on this show, Louis XIV would sit under a tree and make rulings um, about if, if two people could show up and they could argue, then Louis the Fourteenth would wisely decide you or you are right. But that has no precedential value. What you'd like to have is no cases come before the court because everything is settled, and the court only hears the things where the adjudication is unsettled. It's not clear which precedent to apply. So you can do that with a body of precedents. And so what England has because of the common law, and I'd be interested to know, I just don't know what Israel has. What is it that are the set of, it doesn't have to be laws. It, forgive me, it doesn't have to be legislation. It doesn't have to be constitutional. It could be laws in the Hayekian sense where we understand that these are our rules. Expectations about what is custom. What, yeah. is, what are the norms? Yeah. How we behave with each other? And so in, in England, that's actually very clear because there's a bunch of midrash. There's a bunch of judge-made law that tells you these are what our rules are. And so you can look up the decisions that judges have made in what you think are similar fact sets. The question about deciding constitution is difficult because then you're arguing about rules about rules. And so England, the, what's fascinating, and I, one of, I, I, maybe my top five favorite econ talk of all time was the one on the Magna Carta. So the story of the, the writing of the Magna Carta, the evolution of the Magna Carta, was what I found so interesting about that was that it ended up being a set of precedents because uh, Edward Cook in 1680, Hundreds of years later said the Magna Carta will have no sovereign, meaning that the rule of law matters more than the rule of persons. Now, that's actually not true. The king could do pretty much anything that the king wanted. But the, the idea that there is a rule of law, there's a set of rules that we all know, and these will be applied regardless of the privileged position of the person in the society. That, to me, is what is the small C constitution that both England and, I assume, Israel have. So the, to the extent that, and this is kind of Dejase's point, if there are a set of values that are, that are widely enough shared, now we're in a situation of politics where even the losers accept it as being legitimate. So that's the reason that England does have a constitution. I can prove it because they have politics. <laughs> My guest today has been Michael Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.